wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Today, we'll be hearing from someone who's lived on a number of continents and has a heritage drawn from several cultures. She's an author, singer, songwriter and life coach. Her latest song took 15 years to finish, only being completed in the aftermath of a very dark season for her family, where she found herself battling depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. On Bleeding Daylight, we'll delve into some of her story and hear about the constant call on her life that she just couldn't ignore. Please share this episode and connect with Bleeding Daylight on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Nalini Tranquim is an artist, author and life coach. She takes her own life experiences and weaves them into her music and her work. She's also written a book that describes life's journey so far titled The Orange Hue, The Unfolding of a Dream That Awaits. We're going to explore some of her story today on Bleeding Daylight. It's a real honour to have her join me as today's guest. Nalini, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me, Rodney. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Let's go way back to the beginning. These days you live in Australia, but you really bring together an amazing combination of cultures. Tell me about those earliest years for you. Oh my gosh. Okay. Where do I start? Well, my dad is originally from Mumbai in India. He was raised in the Bollywood world. And when he was in his mid to late twenties, he jumped on a ship to Africa, which is where he met my mum, who is British born. She was raised in Norfolk in England, and she just happened to do the same thing. She just jumped on an airplane um, and ended up teaching at the same school that my dad ended up at. They fell madly in love, eloped, and they eventually had me, and I was born in India. And I believe you're born in Chandigarh in India. So I guess that's where they were staying, at least for that time. Why was the move to, to that particular city in India? My dad was teaching at a school up in the hills in Sonar. And um, the nearest city was down in the valley. And that was Chandigarh, which borders Pakistan. And they ended up in Zambia, you know, in my early years of childhood. But politically, things became very, very unstable. And so, you know, they were on the move again. So dad visited Zimbabwe and discovered that things were a lot safer. There was uh, the transition from, you know, British rulership to Robert Mugabe. He was just coming into power and he was this young, budding, you know, politician that was promising the world. Zimbabwe at the time. And so we took that leap and moved across to Zimbabwe, which is actually where I spent the predominance of my childhood. And then, of course, you made a leap out of there. When did you leave? I was 18 when I left. Left mum, dad, my brother, my sister. My dad was running a church at the time. And so left all my friends and loved ones to venture to the UK, my motherland. That must have been an interesting trip. Had you been there before with the family or was this the first time you were going to set foot on that soil? I actually fell in love with the UK as a little girl when mum used to take me back to visit her family. 
And it just had this, I don't know, like Chronicles of Narnia vibe. I think it's because whenever we went, it was freezing cold. And, you know, you'd wake up in the early hours of the morning at granddad's house and look out the window and it was just white, crystal white. And I just remember as a little kid thinking, this is where I'm going to be one day. And did it turn out to be as magical as you had imagined as that little girl? (laughs) It did initially. And I actually talk about it in my book. I remember when it snowed for the first time after I had moved, I was waiting for my bus or the coach that was picking me up to go to work. And the snow just began to fall. I was wearing a fox fur coat and was dancing in the middle of the road just in my element, because, you know, being raised in Africa, you don't get to experience snow very often. And so I was in heaven. And then when the coach pulled up, the driver was rather annoyed and I couldn't work out why he was so upset. And it was only when I was defrosting in the lovely warmth of the coach that I realized I was leaving a puddle behind. The magic of London did kind of dissipate quite abruptly, actually within the first few months. Going back, you did mention that your father was running a church when you left. So what was the faith story there for your parents? Had they been Christians all along? What was their story? My dad was raised Hindu. So his whole childhood was Hinduism. He then moves to Africa, falls in love with this British woman who was of the understanding that, well, I'm British, therefore I'm Christian. (laughs) But they were on this faith journey of seeking out. I think they just knew that there was so much more to life than just the physical. And they met this young American missionary couple while they were out in Zambia, who mum describes as would just treat God as if he was part of the family, like he was there all the time. You know, they'd be sitting down at the table to have dinner and Kathy would just say a quick prayer and thank the Lord for the food. And just the way that they referenced Jesus and their faith in God, I think it really tantalized mum's senses to want to seek it out more. And it was only when they left and moved across to Zimbabwe and experienced loneliness for the first time since being in Africa, you know, because they were starting again on their own with two little children, that mum, in desperation, went for a walk one day and happened across a little Baptist church where she could hear singing coming from inside. And she snuck her head in and she said she was so overwhelmed because it was the choir practicing Handel's Messiah for a performance that they were going to be putting on. And it took her right back to when she was a little girl and her grandma used to take her to church. And she said she just had this overwhelming sense of, I've come back home. It was, she said it was the weirdest thing. She then ended up converting to Christianity. Like she actually gave her life to the Lord. And then both mom and dad ended up in the worst couple of years in their marriage because now all mum wanted to do was seek after more of this God. And my dad didn't know who this person was. You know, for him, he was like, well, where's my partying, adventurous freak of a wife, (laughs) you know, who used to drink and smoke and swear like a trooper. She just literally like switched overnight and he couldn't handle it. So he ended up at a crossroads. And I remember he tells this story. He says 
he woke up this one morning and he knew it was either make or break for their future, that either something's got to change with him because she had evidently changed or this was not going to work. And he tells the story of going outside in the early hours of the morning and just looking up to the sky and just having this conversation with God and saying, you know, if you're real, then I don't want a hypocritical relationship with you where I am worshipping you on Sunday and then I'm committing adultery with my neighbor's wife on Monday. If, if I'm going to give you a go, then I want this to be the real deal. And you're going to have to show yourself to me. And it's going to have to be a year by year, month by month, week by week, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, second by second relationship with you. If you can give me that, then I'm in. And he's never looked back. How did this affect you? You're this 18-year-old who is now leaving your family, heading for London. Did you take some of that faith with you? I'll be honest with you. I remember the change in mum and dad, even as a little girl, because I grew up around beer bottles and partying, and that was the norm. And then all of a sudden, it seemed with them, I know it doesn't happen like that with everyone, but with mum and dad, that changed like overnight. And then it was probably when I was about four or five years old, the Billy Graham crusades came to Africa and families were encouraged to invite their loved ones, those who had televisions. And we would all sit in front of the television and watch the Billy Graham crusades. And I remember as a little girl, listening to this man speaking so passionately and so fervently of his love of this Jesus and how all we have to do is call upon his name and we'll be saved. And I just remember being absolutely googly-eyed, standing up in front of the audience, you know, mum having to shoo me out of the way because I was just blown away by this man's passion. And it was then as a little girl that I remember thinking, I want to be able to introduce people to the love of Jesus like this. So my whole childhood, really, the end goal was that I would move to London and I would pursue a career in music. I was classically trained in piano. And that overall, the vision was I was going to eventually be introducing people to the love of Jesus through music. That was the plan. So that brings us to this point where you've touched down in London and you've already explained a little bit of that first snow and your first impressions of this amazing wonderland. But how did that wonderland progress for you? So first few days, I was sleeping on the floor in my now brother-in-law's home and trying to figure out life as an independent woman very abruptly. You know, I didn't have the support of mum and dad around me that I could just call and say, you know, hey, can I come for dinner tonight because my fridge is empty. I literally had to figure things out. And so it was a scramble in those first few weeks after landing in London to find work, to get money in the bank. Uh, Slowly, slowly started getting into rhythm. Within a couple of weeks, I was able to move into a house share and find my own feet. But it was within the first 
few months, probably three or four months, as I was getting into stride and slowly, slowly reaching out to producers and agents and managers and, you know, doing auditions and getting into that groove to pursue this career in music that I had arrived there for, realized that my health wasn't as it should be. And within four months, I found myself sitting with a doctor young Indian gentleman, he had eyes like dad's, which were very reassuring, asking me, do you have someone who can be with you at this time before I share with you what's actually going on with your body? And I remember thinking, what on earth? There is no ways I could possibly be dying because I've got this whole future mapped out. I mean, you know, I'm going to be an incredible witness for Jesus. So what on earth is going on? Lo and behold, I was pregnant with my boyfriend's baby. He wasn't sure of the dates. He reckoned I was probably about seven months gone. And it just, oh, it just threw me. I said, there is just no possible way. We messed around maybe once or twice, but, you know, it wasn't anything serious and there's just no ways. And he said, no, you you are pregnant. (laughs) And so I'm sitting there thinking, wow, that's it that's it. This dream, this vision, this plan for my life that I have been gearing towards for the past 18 years is gone. It's never going to happen. And this boyfriend was back in Zimbabwe? He was in the UK. He'd arrived in the UK a couple of months prior to join me for Christmas. The plan was he was going to come and spend Christmas with me and then he was going to go back. I left the clinic that night and called him and he was actually coming to meet me. So it was great timing. And we just stood in the streets of West London and bawled our eyes out because we just had no idea that our actions from prior had actually followed us to the here and now. There we were, two kids. I mean, I was 18. He was 20, 19, 20, you know, being told that you're going to be parents when that was not part of the plan. (laughs) So the plan is laying in tatters. What comes next? You're already seven months into this pregnancy. How did things progress from there? Well, I can tell you now, it started off with dealing with immense shame, incredible guilt. You know, I'm a pastor's daughter, for goodness sake. My dad is running a church in Africa filled with precious people that he loves and is nurturing and his own daughter is messing around behind his back. She's not married and now she's pregnant. And this dream that she's had that was very public back in Zimbabwe, you know, she or this pastor's daughter goes to become the next best thing in music. Well, it's all fallen flat. So I can only describe to you the guilt and shame in that moment was so overpowering. It felt like There is no redemption for this. Like, how on earth are we going to fix this? We had to fast track. And after Sandra and I, my now hubby, sat down and talked about it, it was evident that we were madly in love. Sure, this was not what we had planned. But why not at least make sure that this little one is born within wedlock? Why not let's just get married and let's do things the right way? So that brought a sense of relief that, okay, at least we're in this together. He's not just going to disappear back to Africa and leave me on my own now to fend for myself. We were in this 
together. I'm wondering about that conversation with your parents. You're saying you're feeling that shame, especially because of your parents and them running a church. How did that conversation go with them? The first people that we shared with was actually my aunt, my mum's sister and her husband, Auntie Ruth and Uncle Richard, just the most beautiful couple. So we just heard the news. I think it was a Thursday. I remember Friday's just having the sense of, I've got to talk to somebody, but I don't know who. Can't talk to mum right now because I've no idea how I'm supposed to tell her this. So I called her sister, phoned Auntie Ruth, asked, is there any possibility we can come over for the weekend? Of course, she says, jump on the next, you know, the next train after work on Friday and we'll pick you up from the station. So that's what we did. We arrived at theirs on Friday night, couldn't say a word. All day Saturday, I'm churning. Sandra and I go for walks. We're trying to articulate in our mind's eye, what are we going to say? How are we going to say it? What do you think their response is going to be? It was just, ugh, I, I could just feel my stomach in my throat. And it was only Saturday night, you know, when Sandra says to me, listen, we've got to go back to London tomorrow. You're going to have to talk to her. And after dinner, I eventually mustered up the courage. And while we were in the kitchen doing the dishes, I just said to her, Auntie Ruth, I really need to have a conversation with you. And so she sits me down on my bed and I said to her, look, I know this is unexpected and I've got all these plans, but I just need to share something with you. Sandra and I are going to have a baby. And I actually closed my eyes because I saw her hand lift up. And I don't know why, but I thought she was going to slap me across the face But in actuality, she was just so elated with the news. She was actually flinging her arms around me to give me this almighty cuddle. And I just bawled. I broke down. And I I said to her, I don't know what I expected. I think I just thought you would be so disappointed with me for being pregnant and not being married. And I've just been so guilt-ridden. But how am I going to tell mum? And she was just the best person for me in that moment. She said, right, tomorrow morning, you're going to call mum. You're going to be very matter of fact. You're not going to allow the conversation to linger on because that's just going to be too painful for both of you. So just give her the brutal facts and then tell her you're going to call her from London when you arrive there in the evening. So next morning, that's exactly what we did. Mum and dad, of course, at the time were at church when I called. And so the gentleman who picked up the phone ran into the church service to call mum, which only made it worse for me because I knew they were right in the middle of the service, worst possible timing. I could tell by her voice that she knew something was wrong because I don't call her at church every day. So immediately she picks up, hi, Poppy. She used to say that whenever she knew something wasn't right. I just went on to say, hi, mum. We're at Auntie Ruth and Uncle Richard's. Everything's okay. I just have to say something to you. And then I'm going to hang up and I'll call you back from London this evening. And she goes, okay. And then I just proceeded to say, Sandra and I are going to have a baby. I know this is going to come as a shock to you. But like I say, I'm just going to leave you with that fact now. And I will call you back this evening. And I literally hung up. That must have been incredibly hard to just leave that there, knowing that you're going to continue the conversation a little later. How did that conversation go when you did get back to London? Oh, it was hell. 
She was so quiet. Uh, Dad was at the evening service. She said she had told Dad pretty soon after they had gotten home after the morning service and he just locked himself away in his office and hadn't come out all day. And then he just very quietly left for the evening service and hadn't said anything. My heart, I just, I was so devastated that I had hurt him this way. I was just so mortified. He was the love of my life for the first 18 years of my life. And I had just completely destroyed him in a way. So the following weeks were hell because he couldn't talk to me. He didn't know how to talk to me. The ripple effect was just devastating. It was absolutely horrific. So when did this difficult time turn into joy? It probably would have been the day that he was born, which was just a few months later, and holding this little one in my arms for the first time and just seeing the love of my life in love with his son. That just, oh, I just, I don't know. It. I think if anything, I got a glimpse of the father's love for his children. I don't think you fully understand a parent's love until you are a parent for yourself. It was probably in that moment that I realized if I can love this child so much, have so much love for this little human that I've only just met, how much more my Heavenly Father loves me, surely there is healing from this. You mentioned that you wanted to be married for the sake of this child. When did that marriage occur? The marriage occurred a couple of months before he was born, which was absolutely thrilling. That too did not look quite like what we had expected. You know, my idea was we were going to find a little church local to where we were living and we would, you know, walk down the aisle together and and get married in church. That was my heart's desire. We unfortunately were rejected by the church and that came as a devastating blow for me. We would sit with minister after minister and we would pour our heart out and share with them that, yes, we're in sin, but we want to put things right before God and before man. So please, won't you marry us? And the response that we got was, if we marry you, we are condoning your actions. Now, come the third rejection, it felt as though it was God himself rejecting me. So I had to go on a journey on that front, even in terms of the church. You know, I had grown up in the church. My dad had converted from Hinduism to Christianity. I'd watched the Billy Graham Crusades as a kid talking about the endless love of God and only ever knew the love of God as a child to then very dramatically after leaving home be awakened to a brutal truth according to man that maybe his love isn't as ending as we suppose, oh, it it knocked the wind out of my sails. I mean, after little one was born and I say we married and we did, we ended up getting married in a registrar office because we wanted to be married when this little one was born. And I'm so glad that we did. But it took me years to get to that place where I realized that God's love is unending. There is nothing that we can do that is beyond 
his redemption. However, we live in a fallen world, and sometimes even those who are placed in positions of authority and leadership within the church can actually misrepresent God's love and his forgiveness. We see a very different picture in the scripture of Jesus who does meet with sinners, with people who have done the wrong thing, and he's calling them back to something bigger. So when did you actually come to terms with that for yourself? You say you went on this search and you found that there is this God of endless love. How did you manage to to reconcile that? Look, it would have been probably when our firstborn was about three years of age that we stepped foot in church for the first time after being rejected by the church when we wanted to marry. And I remember standing on the threshold of this old little school hall that was dusty and musty and not very appealing, but listening to the worship leader on the platform who was just a solo singer with his guitar, singing a love song to Jesus. And I remember standing on the threshold of this door and being saturated with this overwhelming presence of Jesus. And and I describe it in the book, it almost felt like he was wrapping me in a big, cozy blanket in that moment. And it was my first time back in church and I cried like a baby, but it wasn't from grief. It was from a sense of, I do belong. And he does see me as I am in my current state, flaws and all. And he welcomes me in with open arms. You know, he doesn't expect perfection from me. He knows that I am human. He knows that I am broken and messed up yet he takes me anyway. And then our lives over the last, you know, several years, we've experienced incredible highs and horrific lows and all the way through the one thing that has remained has been his constant unfailing love. That's been the one thing that has just stood the last 22 years of us being married. It does seem that that moment with that worship leader experiencing someone with a deep relationship with Jesus very much mirrors your mother's experience with those American missionaries where they encountered people that knew Jesus. Have you ever reflected on that, that it's actually when we come into contact with people who know and have a relationship with Jesus that we're drawn closer to him? Oh, that is so true. And I think one thing that I've realized of late is that just because the scape of the earth is as it is, right, where we're having to be very cautious about what we say and how we say it and we don't want to offend this group and that group, the best thing we can do is reflect the love of God to our world. That is the best thing we can do because God's love is unending. God's love is perfect like it it keeps no record of wrong right love covers a multitude of sin so what it's enabled me to do and i think because 
I've experienced my own guilt and shame for things that I've done wrong in my life. Is it's, it's given me a different set of eyes for those who I love, but who are currently also living in their own sin or in their own guilt and shame, because it, it's allowing me to just love them unconditionally and trust that they're going to go through that journey in their own time, in God's way, between them and God. It's got nothing to do with me, right? So it's enabled me to be able to love unconditionally. And I think that is so what the earth needs right now, is us who love God to bring that love to the forefront for our world so that people can look at us and go, wow, what is it? There's just something about this person that is different to everyone else around me, and they're drawn to it. How did you manage to rebuild the relationship with your parents? It took time, but I'll be honest, the best moment of healing and restoration was actually when we decided to go back to Zimbabwe with our little baby. He was about two years old and visit the family. That honestly was the best thing we could have done. We touched down in Zimbabwe. The minute mum and dad saw this little bundle and got to see him face to face and hold him, it's like all the rules and regulations that I think religion can sometimes impose on us just dissipated. And there was just this love for him. And over the course of the two weeks that we were together, we were able to just talk and cry and relive the scene, you know, from the different angles. And that brought us together as a family unit. It was just precious. And your journey back in London you had gone there with the idea of, of working in music and, and using the skills that you had built and had learnt. When did music start to become part of your life again in that way? It probably began the day that I stepped foot into this little musty school hall and heard that worship singer for the first time and wept like a baby for the first time and felt God's presence and love over me. That was the first day in about three years that I went home and I opened up my piano and I played again. And throughout the course of, you know, the weeks and the months, I continued to play and we continued to attend this church and get stronger again in our faith. And I got stronger on the piano again because it had been years since I had played. And it was such a beautiful season of healing and restoration. And for the first time, I had this glimmer of hope that, wow, maybe it wasn't a dream lost. Maybe it's just a question of timing and that there's obviously a journey that needs to be traveled before this dream and this vision of mine to be able to be used by God to share his love through music and spoken word comes to fruition. And so it would have been probably about six months after really getting into stride at this church that I was asked to come on board as the worship director. And so my journey in music really began a lot sooner than I had expected. And where did it go from there? 
you're now the the worship director of this little church and and starting to i guess understand that this is the gift that god has given you and that it's a, an opportunity to share this where did the journey go Wow. Well, this little church ended up becoming a really big church in a considerable, well, at a considerable speed for London, actually, which was just breathtaking to witness. And eventually we ended up having to move to a bigger theatre. And so I was worship director for this church for about seven years and grew the team from scratch, which was just an exhilarating process. Uh, and it included, you know, songwriting and recording albums for the church. And, you know, we hosted conferences each year. And it was just an incredible, incredible season of growing in the gift set that I believe God had given me, growing as a leader, growing as a lover of people, you know, and coming alongside my team and those who were struggling and mentoring them and loving on them and nurturing them. I had an incredible seven years, but I still to this day don't quite know what shifted, but something shifted with my relationship with my pastor he became quite controlling and quite manipulative. And he wanted to know where I was and what I was doing and what I was working on. And, you know, I wasn't allowed to take weekends off. I needed to be on stage every Sunday at every service. Uh, He wanted me at every meeting. And it just, it got progressively worse throughout the course of a couple of years. And Eventually, it actually left me extremely broken. It got to the point where Sandra was shaving one morning and I walked into the bathroom and I slouched onto the floor and I just said, I can't do this anymore. I just, I can't do this anymore. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. Something has to change. I didn't realize it then, but that actually set the ball in motion for what I believe God literally plucked us out of that situation in London and repositioned us in Australia. By the time we arrived in Western Australia, I was a broken, disgruntled, (laughs) devastated Christian hanging on to God by a thread completely having lost sight of who I was and what I'm here for. So again, you've come to this point where that relationship with God has has started to suffer at the hands of those who are not really handling that relationship well. How did that start to resolve itself? How did you start to to come back to knowing that God is this all-loving God? Yeah, it took me a couple of years, actually. We would go to church on Sunday and I would sit on the back row. And when the pastor eventually, you know, actually it was fairly soon after arriving in the country, when the pastor asked me if I'd be interested in taking over the worship team, I ran a mile. I was like, I am not going near it. And so I definitely remember being a hands-folded church attendee for quite some time. I walked away from music. I thought, nope, this is obviously not what I'm meant to be doing. And 
just stuck my teeth into accounting, which was my backup career. And it was this one afternoon, I was sat in my office doing somebody's tax return or superannuation fund, can't remember, looked out the window and I thought, oh my goodness, I am going to die a very young age if this is all my life is for. And it was with that realization that I went home that night and I was I found myself on my knees before God and I was like, you have got to do something because I cannot live my life you know, without fulfilling what it is that you've put in my heart. And I still believe deep down that it's music and that it's meant to be about sharing your love with the world. But how am I going to do that? I am so broken. I don't even know who I am. And that's when I woke up the next morning with the song, come as you are, as you are, Come as you are, lay your gifts at my feet and let me show you who you are. And so I quit my job. (laughs) I quit my job and I took a year out to hone in on my craft as an artist. I started teaching piano and voice and then had the joy and the privilege of producing the Today Tomorrow album with a team in Nashville got back to Western Australia after having recorded that and thought, yes, okay, it was music all along. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. Okay, I'm just not meant to be working for the church. That's fine. I'm figuring this out. Okay, Lord, this is what you want me to do. I'm going to get stuck in boots and all. No holding back. And so you're drawn back to that very first vision that you had as a little girl that you're going to be using music to draw people to the love of Jesus. 100%. And it was exhilarating. You know, we were in post-production stage. So we were working on this album with the team in Nashville remotely and listening to the tracks as they developed them and building ideas and dreams in our mind that, okay, let's do an Australia tour and then let's take this out worldwide. And how did that plan go? Well, (laughs) we are in the thick of this, of dreaming and planning and finalising this album. When our youngest son suddenly, out of nowhere, falls severely ill and our life was just turned upside down. You won't believe this, but... We actually ended up packing our lives into a friend's sea container, dumped it on his farm and relocated to Los Angeles for six months because our son needed treatment for this horrific illness that he was diagnosed with. And I had to pack away the music dream all over again. And I just had to focus on being a mum to my boy. Your plans just keep getting interrupted, but you keep getting called back to what God is wanting to do in your life. Are you starting to see him weaving a story through all this? Oh, absolutely. And it's it's the most beautiful tapestry than I could have ever imagined. And I say this not to boast. I say this because I know that there are people listening and you're thinking, oh my gosh, that's me. 
you know, just as I start to see the momentum build, it suddenly crash lands and then I have to pick up again and then it crash lands. And you start, you find yourself sometimes getting to the point where you're just like, well, why bother? Why am I even attempting to do this? Let me just settle for a nine to five and be done with it. Yeah, but you know what? When it's when it's a call of God on your life, it's not going to go away. For as long as you have breath, there is this soft beckoning on the inside of you to just get up again. And I, I keep having this picture, dust off the dirt from your knees and get back up. That's how it's been my whole life. Dust off the dirt from your knees and get back up. He is demanding endurance, resilience, tenacity. Because if we quit, then what about the lives that we are supposed to be impacting in a year, two years, three years, 10 years from now? What happens to them? And that's the thing with trial and with struggle is it shifts your focus to insula to internal, to I, me, and myself. But if we can just shift our gaze back outward to those out there in the world who are in such desperate need of a savior, oh, I don't know, it makes the get up that much easier. And you keep returning to music. You keep being able to use music to draw people to Jesus. And you are using all the experiences that you've had and many others that we haven't touched on to actually be a life coach and to speak words of life into others' lives. I imagine that that's something that continues to raise that passion within you to reach out to others. It's incredible because I might have had the dream at four years of age, you know, or the, the, the bravery to jump on that plane at 18 to pursue it but I didn't have the journey traveled at that point in order to be able to speak into people's lives, in order to be able to thread the lyrics of songs that I now form that carry such a depth to them that I wouldn't have had had I not have had to go through the fire beforehand. And do you find that that's what people are connecting to, that it's not just music, as beautiful as music is, Oftentimes, it's those lyrics that we put together with music that actually draw something out of the heart of people. Absolutely. And I remember having this conversation with God once before where I was like, "Mm, how is life coaching and music going to marry together? I just don't see it. Life coaching and book writing, sure. But where does the music fit? And it's just so incredible. I can see the way that he's somehow marrying the three together because I find sometimes at the end of a session with a client you know I'll be able to just send them a little song that I've written that is just so relevant to where they are right now you know and a little word of encouragement darling thinking about you today you know just listen to this song and just let the words wash over you it's crazy to see how God is like weaving all the the trauma and the crap you know from (laughs) from the seasons traveled how he's interweaving all of that into storytelling and being able to edify and build people up and encourage them in their own journeys not only through coaching but through song and storytelling as well oh I'm just like thank you Jesus thank you that I didn't quit because 
uh, I would have been missing out on all of this. <laughs> so fast forward now, what does life look like for you right now? Life for me right now is pretty amazing. It's actually the life that I had dreamt of when I was a little girl. It's taken a different form. In fact, it's it's fuller than I had expected. I think my dream was I would be traveling the world and singing on a stage, and that would pretty much be it. But it's now very much coaching, which is an integral part of what I do, connecting with people one-on-one, podcasting and spending time with people like you, Rodney. I get to continue with my songwriting. We've just released Your Love, which has blown my expectations through the water. It's exhilarating. I'm working on my second book at the moment. And this is literally, I know in my heart, this is what I'm meant to be doing. And it's required me to bring the stories, the struggles and the triumphs along the way to be able to inject into people's lives. And I just, I love it. If people are wanting to learn more about your story, to read that book, The Orange Hue, or to listen to some of the beautiful music that you've produced over time, where's the best place for people to be able to find you? So certainly on my website, so nalinitranquim.com. My music's also available on iTunes, Spotify, all major online platforms as well. The Your Love music video is on YouTube and I know it will touch your heart. I know it will. And know that it has been written from a very tedious season, as that seems to be my journey. Um, so I have also written the story behind the song, which can be found in my on my website, in my journal. And I will put links to all those places on the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net. But Nalini, it has been a delight to speak to you, to hear just a, a glimpse of your story. I'm sure that people will want to be filled in on all the details and grab that book. But thank you so much for spending time with us today on Bleeding Daylight. Thank you, Rodney. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.